Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing a migrant church in el siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the migrant church continue to thrive? What should a migrant church look like today? These questions and more what we explore together with your hosts, Emmanuel Padilla and la doctora Elizabeth Ponde Frazier. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On this episode, we're joined by Dr. Willie James Jennings to discuss a vision for the church after whiteness. We ask questions about the assimilation tendencies of the church and theological education, the desire of many black and brown church folk to separate entirely, and a vision for the full communion between God's people. So siéntase en casa, make yourself at home, and let's get started. Brother Jennings, welcome. It is an honor, a privilege to have you uh, join us here on the Mestizo Podcast. Listen, the honor is all mine. I'm just glad to be in the number. That's fantastic. And Elizabeth, how are you? It's been, it's been a little while since we talked. It's been just a, a little while. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yes, yes. Listen, if you're new to the show, let me welcome you to a mixed space, a space where people live in the hyphen, ni de aquí, ni de allá, we like to say. We're excited you're joining us. If you've missed any of the previous episodes of the show this season, make sure you go back, especially to check out the last episode we did with Doctora Ariel Aquines, who talks about Afro-Latinidad, looking at her research in Colombia and here in the States. Also check out our episode with uh, Sandra Maria Van Opstel as we discuss decentering whiteness in multicultural congregations. Now, we have the opportunity to receive questions from y'all. If you have a question about today's conversation or any of the conversations we've had th thus far this season, don't forget to leave us a voicemail. You can call us at 312-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. You can also submit those questions via the link that's attached to the show notes. Show notes. Lastly, don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at World Outspoken, where you can get all this content and so much more. Brother Jennings, before we get started, I realize I, I need to ask you a question. A lot of your research deals with, with the Spanish. How much Spanish language do you got down? How much Spanish can we go into today and, and keep you tracking? Not at all, brother. No, none <laughs> at all. I, as they say, as they say, if if you can't do it right, don't try to do it. But it's on my it's on the top of my to-do list. It's on the top of your to-do list. All right. We might we yeah. might test you a little bit, but I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, at, at one point in time when I was moving through my doctor pro, my program, this was before people got a little more enlightened. You know, I asked my um you know, the directors of the program, they want me to learn French. I said, could I do Spanish instead of French? I'll, I'll check on that. And the answer was, oh, we don't think so. I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's this a shame. the unenlightened days when you couldn't even do Spanish as a substitute for French. In fact, they said to me, well, you, if you do your French and your German, then we might allow you, you know, but you have to, give, you have to uh, write us some actual rationale for why that's important you know yeah. you want to make sure you know the scholarly languages first you talk about that in your book after whiteness the scholarly languages yes i do yeah we'll get into that well hey speaking of your books i thought i'd read uh your most recent book after whiteness and education and belonging it has these personal anecdotes i thought i'd read mm. one of them and then i i have a question for you related to that anecdote 
you write this little vignette of your story. You say, I've always been a listener of bodies and a reader of thoughts. This fact is more and less mystical than it sounds. I've always loved books and the sensual act of reading, rubbing my hands across a page, delighting in the way letters dance on a page, sensing my breathing in and out as I connect the words and then the sentences and the paragraphs. And as they connect, I hear the voice of the writer, ha the voice the writer has created. Then and there, the thoughts appear, open and free for anyone with the patience to see. Reading thoughts has always been a precious freedom for me. I learned very early, however, through trial and error, that the voice formed as one reads the pages of a text is a phantasm. Its connection to the actual author always a matter of speculation. And that how that voice connects to my thoughts and my voice is integral, integral to that speculation. Trial and error began for me when I too quickly imagined that the funny, irritating, maddening, wise, righteous, audaciously courageous or insightful voices I heard through text matched authors who would see me, a black man, as their conversation partner. My many teachers disabused me early and often of that hopeful connection. My question, Dr. Jennings, is this. What kind of voice do you hope we hear when reading your books? How should we hear you? Who's the Jennings on the page? Well, I hope that when people uh, hear my voice on those pages, that they will, they will sense something different than what I was taught. That is to say, they would sense somebody who would actually see them and then also see them as a conversation partner. So my hope is that I would start a different dreaming, a violation of that, um, that crucial principle that all of us people of color moving through the academy learn that who these dudes and women are <laughs> on their pages and who they are in person, don't, don't get that twisted. My hope is to say, with me, you can hold those together. So I want them to, I want them to sense that um, there's a companion in the journey. But equally important, you know, when you, when you write, as a, as especially as a person of color, as a, especially as a black man, you hope that people will see that you share some sense of their subjectivity. Oh, he sees it. He understands it. He feels what I feel. Okay. All right. I can go somewhere with this gentleman because, you know, he's inside this same thing, even if it's in a, at a different angle. He's yet on the same boat. Can I ask one more thing about that subjectivity? I think that's so important to acknowledge. Uh, your book, mm -hmm. Christian Imagination, it begins with the story of your mother, Mary. Uh, mm -hmm. And then in that book and other writings, even in this book, After Whiteness, belonging is a central theme. Now, you pull us into your subjectivity by, by starting with Mary. Uh, mm -hmm. I was just wondering, what inspires the centrality of belonging as a theme in your writing? Well, you know, it's the, it's the uh, deepest inner logic of uh, all the strategies of survival that was taught by my people. And it's the deepest inner logic of all I was taught about the gospel story, that um, God destroys death through belonging. God casts out the devil through belonging. And God offers a new possibility for us all through belonging. And um, I understood, as my, as my folks taught me, that's the power. The power isn't belonging. So, you know, so coming back to that is crucial. 
and the recognition that all the stratagems of the evil one, all the stratagems of the evil one, are all aimed at severing, destroying belonging. Because if I can destroy in you and around you the power of belonging, then soon you will welcome death because you're by yourself. And if I've convinced you that you're by yourself, then I, I brought you back to that moment when Jesus in hunger had to face the evil one alone. And the evil one kept trying to convince Jesus that you are by yourself. And Jesus kept pressing back. No, I'm not. <laughs> the Jennings is about to preach. <laughs> I'm dealing with two preachers today. He, and he got the preacher going in me too, because here I am listening to the verse that says, and nothing will ever separate you. Hmm. Nothing on, will man. ever separate you from the love of God. And the love of God is not just God. Oh, it's like heaven somewhere. The love of God is me looking at you and you're looking at me and we telling each other that we belong. See, normally I have to reckon with Elizabeth going off and preaching at me, and then I'm I'm not I can't continue the podcast. I didn't know I'd have to deal with two. <laughs> You're in trouble now. I'm in trouble now. Hey, Dr. Jennings, one thing that gets controversial for me in my circles, right? I, I teach here at the Moody Bible Institute. It's a school that's uh very uh centrally placed in the evangelical movement, if I can put it oh, that yeah. way. And oh, yeah. You know, one thing that I deal with is my use of the word whiteness, right? I, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm pulling oh, yeah. from from some of your literature. I'm pulling from others as well as I as I discuss whiteness. Mm -hmm. And you know, I thought I'd read this quote from After Whiteness, and then I'd ask you to clarify for me, help me, help those around me understand. You say mm -hmm. this in After Whiteness. You say, um, "White self sufficient masculinity. It's not a first. It's not first a person or a people." It is a way of organizing life with ideas and forming a persona that distorts identity and strangles the possibility of dense life together. In this regard, my use of the term whiteness does not refer to people of European descent, but to a way of being in the world and seeing the world that forms cognitive and affective structures able to seduce people into habitations and its meaning making. Can you break that down for us? You said yeah. whiteness is not mm -hmm. people of European descent. What do you mean? What are you getting at? This is one of the most difficult things, I think, for so many people of, of European descent to understand. And the reason it's so difficult for so many to understand is because they are on the other side of a work, the aftermath of a profound work in which the, um, the very structures of their existence have been shaped inside an achievement, an achievement gained by their ancestors. It's part of the immigrant story. They came, they were seen as, you know, dirty, you fill in the blank. And um, the vow they made to themselves is that we will transform ourselves. We will lose the languages of the old, of the old country. We will abandon the ways of dress of the old country. We will bring the the, the um, uh, habits of cooking and the homeopathic ways of caring for ourselves will bring those deep inside the inner sanctum. They will not be in public. 
we will take um, the elders among us, our grandparents, and we will put them in the back room. We will tell them to be quiet, company's coming because you know your, your English is not good. We will change our names. We will become white. And that, that um, becoming was painful and carried horror, but it held out the promise that someday your children will say, oh, well, I'm not sure what I am. I think I'm part Irish, part Italian, but I'm not sure what I am. And then those great grandparents, those elders that made that vow will say, finally, we've achieved it. A whiteness that covers everything. And so that reality of whiteness as an achievement, not as a given, not as a part of creation, not as a biology, not as phenotype, but that whiteness as an achievement has, has become such a part of human existence in the West, especially for people of European descent, that to try to talk about it as a way of life, uh, a, a way of seeing, a way of perceiving that was taught, that was shaped, that was formed, is really challenging because they've, they've so much married it to the natural. And so when I so when I talk about whiteness in in uh, this book, and also in the Christian imagination, when I talk about whiteness in this book, I'm I'm trying to get people to see it as an invitation, an ongoing invitation. That so many immigrants, since right when they come into this country, they understand if I want to be accepted, what I will do is I will as much as possible erase the ethnic past out of which I come, erase the signs, sounds, smells of that world and take on this, take on this reality. So for so many people, that kind of um, recognition of a flexibility of identity is, it's not simply new, but for some, it's threatening, it's threatening, and they're not even sure why it's threatening. And, and many times what they sense is that spiritual vow that their, that their ancestors made when they came to this country to strategically and surgically forget our ethnic past, to render it inconsequential to who we are in this country in order to be seen as white American. So what that then means is that when you start to talk with people about whiteness, it feels like hate speech. It feels like you are coming after me. It feels like there's something wrong with me. And what you're trying to point out is that, that there is a process, especially for those of us who are Christian now, there's a process of discipleship in which your identity is now being reclaimed fundamentally by the God who created you. And that identity, that, that taking hold of who you are, is not to eradicate who you are, but to clarify who you are. And that clarification is the pulling for, in our context, in our time in the West, is the pulling away from whiteness. Now, people of color, we understand this. So, you know, what you read for most folk, most people of color, when they read, they're like, oh, I got you. Because for most of us, we understand that the derogatory image of what it means to be black or Puerto Rican or, or Latinx or Asian, that derogatory picture has always been, been challenged in relationship to who we really understand ourselves to be. And so what we've had to do is to go inside and 
pull out the little slivers of truth, little small slivers of truth that have been wedded, stuck inside all this crap. We pull it out and say, okay, this little, this little piece, yeah, okay, this is tied to I am, but all that other mess, no, that's not me. But if all of this has been presented as positive, i.e. whiteness, then even to begin that process as a part of your Christianity, that is, that is not only new, but it's also resisted because when people start to see what you're saying, they say to themselves, why would I even want to do that? Because it's all positive. It's only negative when you bring it up as negative. So, I, so it's easy for me to point a finger at you for saying the word whiteness and say to you that you are the problem. You are creating the problem because you keep calling forward this negativity that undermines Christian witness. And in point of fact, all you're trying to do is invite them into God's own exorcism to pull the thing out. That's good, brother. It's a distorted <laughs> formation. Go ahead, Elizabeth. Now, here's the interesting part, and that is that that part of our Christian identity that is part of our formation as disciples has also been tainted because people have taken the brand of what it is to be a white Christian and have said, you know, from now on, you don't have to be Latina. You don't have to be a Latina, Elizabeth. From now on, all you have to do is be a Christian and all your problems will go away. If you just say that you're a Christian and, and you leave all this Latina stuff aside, you know, which is confusing, then you could be okay. And they don't realize that it's impossible to do something like that, right? It's impossible to do something like that. So, so say something about that distortion as well, because you see, to hear it from you the way that you just said it, it makes sense. But then when you have this other little distortion, right, it makes it very confusing for somebody to discern what's really happening here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, the, the, the reality for us in the Western world is that the Christianity that we were presented is one that imagined Christian existence, discipleship to Jesus inside of a life-denying assimilation. And so that to be Christian is to, in a sense, create a cultural clean slate that um, means that there is this, this washing away of um, the particularities, the stories, the realities that constitute the creature in its, in its specificity all over the planet, right? And so for so many, what's, what's happened is that they, there, there, is, there is a reality of assimilation that's tied to Christianity, but we have never even told that actually is. The kind of assimilation we have been presented is, to use the word that's thrown around in the academy, it's an erasure, but let, let's just stick with what it is. It's, it's saying that who you are in your specificity cannot be narrated, cannot be placed inside the gospel story in such a way that we see its continuation. 
And so the challenge for so many people, especially some who have said, who's yes to assimilation, is to now figure out how do I turn back to what I gave up? I mean, there, there's a work of mourning that some are inside of. And, and I'm, I know you both have seen it. Some, some who, you know, they don't, still trying to grip, come to grips with their sadness or anger after for so many years and for, for many decades being told that to be Christian is, in, is completely to walk away from any particularity. I sing a particular kind of song, you know, I pray a particular kind of way, and, and, it's, and it's so deeply inside white Christian form, a, a certain kind of white Christian form. You know, I, uh, I think it's important to, to add something to the educational aspect of the story, right? I, I think education has played a role in this. You talk about that a great deal in your book. Uh, recent events have, have brought that into further light. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the story, uh, Dr. Jennings, of uh, Dr. Padilla of Princeton. Uh, he has advocated that the classics be uh, deconstructed, that whiteness be considered, that, that the problem of whiteness in the classics in the humanities uh, that it be questioned, and that has caused a firestorm for him. You say this in your book in relation to what Elizabeth has said and in relation to what you said. I'm, I'm going to read another excerpt here. I'm going to do that a couple times throughout our interview here because I, I want us to talk about it by, ground, by grounding it in the book. But you say this, Western education, in the broadest sense, you say Western education is designed within a forced affection, shaped to take, us all, to take all of us on a journey of cultural addition, Add to the great European masters other thinkers who are not white or male, but who approximate them. Add to the great European artists other artists who are also great like they are. Add to the eternal wisdom and universal insights of Europe, the wisdom of other peoples that resemble them. Add these non-white others as embroidery to a frame to frame a picture or spices to season a dish. I think that's what you and Elizabeth are getting at, right? That there is a kind of, you're only ever going to add to the universal, the universalism of the kind of European domination of these ways of thinking, right? Uh, in other words. Yeah. And, this, yeah. and this is, this is, this is a, a terrible problem for us because what this then means is that um, the ability to expand our understanding of what it means to pay attention the ability to expand the reality of affection as, as intellectual virtues, as theological virtues, as, uh, as realities of discipleship, uh, those, those things get lost. And so for so many, it presents a Christianity that is, is life-draining, is a culturally constraining, and um, means that the, the creativity that is possible because you, you bring things together is already, already short-circuited because it's not really being brought together. It's being exploited. And, and that is, that's a fundamental problem in Western education, in theological education, and in the way the church does its work. You know, um, I, I have, and I'm sure you have been to many context in which, many church contexts in which, you know, it's pretty clear that um, non-white Western voices in worship, in preaching, in thinking, float on the outside. They're there, but they float on the outside. 
And they're, they're, we look at them every once in a while as they float on the outside. And people imagine that that is um, kingdom work. <laughs> that's, that's showing the reign of God. But it's, it, the, the, the tragedy is, is that it's inside that long legacy of um, centered whiteness. Brother, let me ask this. That, that brings up a question. Every time World Outspoken, the ministry that helps to uh, put together this podcast, every time we're asked to come and speak and offer training at churches that are even multicultural, right? We, we see a lot of this where they say, well, we're looking to hire a Puerto Rican pastor. Can you coach us on what that might look like? Or more truthfully, they don't ask specifically for a Puerto Rican. They might say, we're looking for a Hispanic pastor. Don't think about even the particularities within that identity, right? Mm -hmm. Hispanic. Mm -hmm. um, you talk in your book about uh, forced affections, right? Mm -hmm. And some of our white listeners would say, well, you're, you're, you're trying to give us a new forced affection, uh, affection of diversity, right? How do we change mm -hmm. affections so that words like we're committed to a diverse pastoral leadership, how do we change affections such that those beautiful words are true words? And that we we don't uh, come across as trying to force a new kind of thing. Well, this is part of the challenge, isn't it? Because there there is a there is a um, a, a cultivated blindness, a cultivated ignorance that's inside of the process of Western education. So you know, and, and what that means is that many people are not taught to see the centered whiteness and the formation of their aesthetic sensibilities inside that centered whiteness. So um, the, the, when we say open oneself up to the love that God is drawing, uh, in, drawing us into, that God is pressing through us, for so many people, that love already has a certain kind of control tied to it. And there, there are in, in the West, as, we, as I said in this book, control is one of the virtues that's a part of white self-sufficient intellectualist form. It's a part of it. So um, what, what we have to understand is that affection, affection cannot be understood. The kind of affection that God is trying to give us cannot be understood with control. And what's, what's the primary example we see of that? Acts 10, Acts 10. The sheet is lowered. And Peter, and the sheet is lowered at the height of Peter's hunger. Right? God, at the height of his hunger, wants Peter to now learn to desire that which he had been shaped, cultivated, to not want theologically, morally, or aesthetically. He went, he went ugh, that's not what I like. That's a no. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Um, it's not about what you like. I'm trying to open you up to the reality of what I love <laughs> so that if you love me, you will love who I love. And that love is a teaching, disciplining reality that expands us, right? So I always tell, always tell pastors and those in leadership and who want multicultural witness and want diversity, people will figure out right away, whether you are a teacher or a preacher, whatever you are, people figure out right away 
your loves because your loves are not found in when you say, I love all God's people. Your loves are found in the anecdotes you tell, the stories you tell, the things you talk about that you enjoy eating, reading, talking, singing, listening to. You show me your loves, right? And so the showing, and even if you try to hide them, you're going to show me your loves. And if the loves you are showing me are different from the things you say you're committed to, then I understand that you are still inside the reality of affections that have been not only not only um, colonized, but colonizing. You only want a certain set of affections. And, that, and that's the challenge for so many. Because um, uh, again, um, a, an intellectual life shaped inside the racial reality of the West is an intellectual life that is still calibrated by um, a homogeneity of what makes me comfortable, what I, feel, what I see as safe, and what I see as normal. And inside that, the intellectual life is always going to be a struggle to move toward a greater diversity. Go ahead, Elizabeth. I want you to react to that. <clears throat> well, the whole issue of learning to love uh, differently and of even understanding how it is that God loves. I mean, when you think about what happened to Peter, Peter learned to say, eh, because that's how the Torah was interpreted to him. Mm-hmm. That's how his people lived. Mm-hmm. That was part of, of, of Judaism. And, and, and that wasn't just a cultural part of who he was. That was a religious part of who he was. That was his righteousness to God. That was his, his righteous expression to God. This is why he learned that the, the, the purification laws, which is how this whole food thing came about, right? That that was all part of how you loved God. And so how do you tell me that I'm not loving like God when this is what I have been taught is what, how God would have me to love. And how you undo that, you see, takes the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always will take our traditions, our interpretations of what we think is, and will turn them upside down. And then we'll say, go ahead, Emmanuel, you figure it out now. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you have to keep listening to the witness of the Holy Spirit, if you're going to really understand. So when we talk about what happened later after Acts 10, there was Acts 15. Oh yeah. yeah. Acts 15 is the council of the church trying to figure out what's happening here. They hear the witness of the spirit of Paul and of Peter. And then they do something that we haven't done. There's a moment of silence. Mm. Silence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not all of this controversy, not all of this, you know, batting back and forth with the verses and the stuff. And in that silence, James, the brother of Jesus, comes up with a verse that has never before been used around the whole issue of Gentiles and Jews and how one becomes the other. 
And yet, the Spirit allows them to hear that verse in a new way, um, in a new context, in a new situation that they had never had to deal with before. They hear that verse in a new way, and that's when it changes for them. Okay, this now makes it make sense. And we've not had these moments of silence. We've just had people hitting each other back and forth with the usual verses. And in the midst of that, we're talking about human beings. Yes, my sister. And we have sacrificed people, real people on the altars of our theology. That's so important, Elizabeth. I think it's important to give us a little bit of a musical break, speaking of silence. We'll take a quick musical break, give you a chance to transition and think about what you've heard, and then we'll come back with our interview and continue our interview with Dr. Jennings about his book, After Whiteness. All right, so we're back. We're interviewing Dr. Jennings, talking about his book, After Whiteness, and trying to cast a vision for the Mestizo Church uh, that is beyond this thing we call whiteness, that we're not referring to European descendants, as we said. We're talking about a a kind of formation, a way of being. Uh, Dr. Jennings, it's interesting because there's there's a couple possibilities in terms of how BIPOC leaders react to this thing called whiteness, right? Some will react by saying, no, I'm done. I want cultural autonomy. I want separation from this thing. Uh, we have been discussing in this podcast now for two seasons. Uh, we've been discussing the desire to see the church, um, to see the mixed reality of the church in some ways. And there are some BIPOC leaders who want to protect their traditions in ways that I understand. They want to mm-hmm. protect them from, from those traditions being commodified those to yeah. traditions being being sold as part of this kind of multicultural movement. What do you say Absolutely. to those who who are concerned? Especially, I'm going to ask the question maybe a little more challengingly, because there's a phrase that caught me by surprise in your book. You use the phrase "good assimilation," and mm-hmm. I I was wondering, you know, what do you mean by that phrase? And and what do you say to those who say, "No, I want to protect what's ours." Well, you know, the first thing you say is uh, uh, completely understandable. And um, you also recognize that the desire to do that is an honest desire. It is built inside the reality of, in fact, I mean, we have to put it this way. We are still caught inside whiteness because of this. And so that entire way of strategizing against whiteness is unfortunately still a modulation inside of whiteness. It's still inside the problem. And, um, and that's not to say, that's not to, uh, it's not a point of criticism or a point, certainly not a point of trying to shame. It's just a recognition of that it is the struggle that we're inside of. And so, so let's be clear about it, right? So, the, the, so here's the struggle. 
The struggle is that we are inside uh, uh, a reality of being in the world, a racial being in the world, in which we are always at the site of exploitation, always at the site of, of this bad assimilation we've been talking about, and always at the site of limited options, right? So, you know, so for, for so many sisters and brothers who will say, listen, um, in order to survive, we need our own enclaves, cultural, spiritual. We need our own places and spaces where we, A, number one, can protect ourselves from more exploitation. B, offer to ourselves the, the necessary reality of encouragement that we need in order to, to survive. And three, actually be able to honestly strategize about how we move forward. Now, all of that, we understand. We understand that, you know, and all of that makes sense. But here, here are some of the basic realities that we have got to face inside of that. Number one, is that anything that moves us towards segregation is already a failed strategy. It's already a failed strategy. Why is it a failed strategy? Because it's inviting us into the same ways of thinking that constitute whiteness itself. It's inviting us into, you know, it's, uh, to use, um, I'm, and I'm using her, um, using her words in ways that she probably wouldn't like. But the famous words of Andre Lord, it's still using the master's tools, but not just using the master's tool, but using the master's blueprint for building. And that's not gonna get us. That's not gonna get us where we want to go. So what, what do we have to have? What do we have to have? We have to have a different vision of what it means to uh, protect, to sustain, and to build. To protect, to sustain, and to build, right? And that different vision brings us back fundamentally to the trajectory of the gospel itself. So here's what we all know, those of us who are Christian. We're inside, we're already inside somebody else's story that we've made our own. We're inside the story of it that we've made our own. We, we're inside somebody else's story. Now, but here's the thing about it. Well, here's what we've learned. We've learned that it is possible to enter into somebody's story without trying to take it over and without losing ourselves. Now, here's the thing about it. The church that we are in, so the reality of Christianity that we are inside of, walked away from the genius of that legacy and we were never cultivated in that legacy. And what is that legacy? That legacy is exactly what I'm talking about in the book. It's a good assimilation, a reverse assimilation, where one enters into the ways of another people, doesn't try to take over their ways, don't try to exploit their ways, and doesn't lose oneself inside it, but is able to speak and live and perform love of those people, love of oneself and love of God, all in the same gestures. 
love of God, love of those people, and love of oneself. Now, that's the legacy that was given to us. It's the path not taken. It's the path not taken. And so what, what am I saying? So we need a different imagination about the possibilities of doing those three things I just mentioned, protecting, sustaining, and building. As I like to say, the goal, the goal is not for me to know my people and know my story and repeat my people's uh, stories and histories and realities and, and logics and genius. The goal is for you to do that. And the goal is for me to do it for you, that together we sustain, together we build, and together we protect. Now, of course, here's the reality. The reality uh, for so many Christians of European descent is that as long as they are inside the logics of whiteness and the way whiteness um, assimilates the very the very the things I'm talking about right now. Are, in, for many of them, I'm like I don't even I don't understand what you're talking about. And so, what's necessary for many of them is to enter into a new reality of what it means to be together. And it begins by some of them had to be introduced to their Bible for the first time, my brother, my dear sister. And what is that? It's a, it, it's a new news for most Christians that I meet that they are inside somebody else's story. They think the Old Testament is theirs. They think Jesus is theirs. They think they are already one of the disciples. And, you know, you have to say, you know, friend, you know, look, if you were back in the time of Jesus, that first of all, they would say to you, who are you? And why are you here? Are you Jewish? And if you said, no, they said, okay, well, you head you over there. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're not with us because you're not a part of our people. And most Christians, when they read their Bible, they have no sense of that texture. What does that mean? They have no sense of the cost in, that was involved into entering into that story. And what, and what they were supposed to have learned, pedagogically speaking, in terms of the nature of the Christian life, in that entering in. That's supposed to be a way of life, the entering in, right? That's not there. And so for so many, especially Christians shaped inside of whiteness, when they think of the entering in, they're thinking of people like you and me and Elizabeth entering into them, entering into their Christianity, entering into their world. And so that very framework is, is fundamental to the problem. But let me be clear, because I want to make sure the, 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 the danger with the Christianity shaped in cultural nationalism is that it um, falls, it falls into the two traps of cultural nationalism. The one is a cultural narcissism in which I imagine uh, what is beautiful, what is good, what is true, what is genius, what is honorable from my people out to the world. And sometimes it don't get out, <laughs> it just stay there. And then the other is the hierarchies. My people, your people, my people, but my people, my people. And the problem is, is that 
Both of those miss the power of calling ourselves the people of God. The people of God gives us everything that they want without the narcissism or the hierarchy. What is the people? The people of God is all the people of God in their particularities. You know, Isaiah 2, all the people streaming into the, 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 the city of Jerusalem to learn of the learn from God. It gives us all the beauty of the particularity, but it's together. Right? Now, the challenge, of course, is that for so many people, they, you know, listen to me, they'll say, but brother, brother, brother Jesus, I hear what you're saying. But let me just say, you know, I have to deal with white people enough you know, in whatever context I do. And so I want a community, I want a church, I want a place where I don't have to deal with them, right? And I understand that. But here's the question to everybody. What would it mean if our sense of what is comfortable, our sense of what is normal, and our sense of what is enjoyable what's comfortable, what's normal, I actually want to say, and what's also safe is shaped by the multitude, shaped by the multitude. That is, it's this diverse body in which you sense and feel that. And it's in this diverse body that, that those realities that create for a flourishing life, that's where they are. What would it mean to raise people in that kind of environment. I'll tell you uh, what, one, one thing it will mean, and I'll stop and let you ask the other questions. I've been going on too long. Um, it will mean that there's a reality of freedom, a reality of freedom that few of us have ever experienced, a reality of freedom. I'm free. I'm free to love. I'm free to enjoy. I'm free to share my life. I'm free to walk away from ways of being that would narrow me, whether it's ways of being that come out of whiteness or ways of being that come out of protective cultural gestures. I'm free. And that's the freedom that so many of us have never experienced. The in-between, right? In between the hyphen, go ahead, Elizabeth. He, he's uh, he's giving you some some fodder there. Well, I think about hierarchy, and to begin with, we have a God whom we see in a hierarchical way, right? Because the the way that many uh, churches will understand the Trinity is very hierarchical. So, if I understand the Creator as a hierarchical being, then I have to understand your relationship to mine in that way as well. It makes sense, right? So that's, you know, that's one piece right there. I also think about being, being in the world and not of it. In other words, I have this freedom, but I'm also operating in a world that's not free and that's always attacking my freedom, no matter how I put it, right? That's always attacking my freedom. And freedom is not just, oh, I'm free. Freedom is not just, you know, do and think as you please. Freedom is, is a lot of responsibility. Freedom is a lot of discernment. A lot of discernment that we do in community. Now, I've known, I've known racism 
racism stands because we've learned to keep it in place. If you lean forward and I lean forward from the other side, we're keeping each other from falling on the, on the floor. And that's how we keep racism going. You lean into it and I lean into it. I may lean into it from an opposite side for different reasons, but you do the same. And neither one of us can let go because we're both on the floor on our faces. And so. That's so good. Creating those spaces where we decide that we're going to go at least, you know, one, two, three, and both of us sort of lean out for a minute and then look at one another, which is what happened in creation, right? When, when the Ish and the Isha were in front of one another, mm. and that's when they knew their identity. This is about identity. This is about knowing who you are and knowing who I am and thinking about ourselves with sober judgment. So I can't think of myself in, in a hierarchical way in relationship to you, right? That's what humility is. You but said, it is so hard to come to those places of humility because I have to let go of all of these things that protect me. And I keep feeling I have to protect myself because otherwise I'm going to get attacked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These ideas of freedom, of being in the in-between that both of you guys have raised, these discussions of hierarchies, I can't help but relate it to the story of Harold in the book, Dr. Jennings. You oh, talk yes. about this figure, Harold. He is yes. a brother, a child of an African-American pastor who, yes. who, is, who is being formed to take over for his dad when his dad retires. And he, yes. he is excited to, to honor the traditions of, of the black church and, and to bring those forward. And, and you say yes. this about Harold, and, and I can't help but bring it up because these hierarchies happen, especially within Latinx communities as well. We, we have something mm -hmm. very similar to this Harold story. Um, and so as we mm -hmm. talk about freedom, hierarchies, uh, being in the in-between, I, I wanted to raise Harold's story. You say this about Harold. You said, I need to return to Harold. For this black man who would be Afro church king also made like life difficult for his student colleagues. Harold administered racial tests to everyone. He tested how other black students would preach, talk, walk, sing, pray, dress, and play. He commented on what food they would and would not eat, what music they would listen to, what hymns and gospel songs they knew and did not know, what preachers, teachers, evangelists, bishops, singers, and groups they had learned about and from, and most devastatingly, he judged who was fit to carry forward the legacies of blackness, of Africanness, of diaspora hope. You go on to say, I wanted Harold to live a different kind of fragment life, fragment life, one that would resist reduction, war against the test, and allow him to be unfolded. That's what Elizabeth was talking about, unfolded, opened out to a blackness that cannot collapse, but that flows like water into everything and everyone, without fear and fear's unruly child, the need to control. Mm -hmm. Can you speak further to that? Because there are so many Latinos who are doing these kinds of tests, right? Absolutely, and, absolutely. And, and I, I think it's important to address that. It's, it's present, you know, in my many years in the academy, it's present in so many contexts. 
you know, to, to have um, strong, articulate sisters and brothers, uh, whether we're talking about African-American, Latinx, Asian, Filipino, uh, I've seen it from folks from various parts of the continent. And what, what they wind up doing is that um, they wind up, I mean, and all, all of them, wonderful people now, at the end of the day, wonderful people. But what they wind up doing is not being able to see the possibilities, not only of the existence of those, but their own existence. That they've already decided the reach of their existence and the, the shape that, that their life can take, that God would, would open them up to. Because when they look at other folks like them, whether we're talking about Latinx or Filipino or African-American or African, Caribbean, you know, or Jamaican, when they look at folk like them, they've already decided, they've already decided who they are and the extent to who they are. I mean, this is part of the narcissism. It's, it's already, it's already pulling them in. Okay. You know, you, you are now walking, you're not, you're not walking in the lines. You're not walking in the lines. And so, and what's the deep tragedy is that they don't realize how profoundly colonial, how profoundly white that very reality is. I, I'm in, uh, we, we used to have students over at, at our house for Christmas and other, other holidays. And I would always watch some students who, you know, it, it's, it's the most subtle kind of bullying that you could ever see, where somebody doesn't quite sing it right. So, oh, you know, you spend too much time with the white baby, uh, you know, or somebody doesn't, oh, you don't want to eat that? Oh, what's wrong with you? You don't like that? And, and, and all of a sudden you see this subtle policing happening that, that is saying, come back inside the lines, come back inside the lines. You cannot be of us and be that wide, that, that tall, that long. That's beyond us, right? And to then watch the, in the eyes of those, their, those, their student colleagues who now realize that there's a whole reality of who they have been that they have to now slice off, put away, and hide while they are going through their theological education because that, that can't be, that cannot be factored in here. It, can, you know, it cannot be thought through that I, that that this is also blackness this is also latinx life this is also this is you know you even on the black this is also that because the also the also brings a lie to cultural purity the also undermines the idea of a cultural nationalism for my people only my people to my people it undermines that if that means these are the lines. <laughs> These good. are the lines, and it's interesting I mean, when you when you when you, when I would point when I would gently point out to the students who are at what they're doing, that often those would be I'm not doing that I'm not doing that. Or the response would be Well, you don't understand that you don't understand. I said Okay, <laughs> I don't understand. And at the same time, they're they're not hearing the spirit of God speaking from the new, speaking from different. And so their ability to hear how, where God might take them 
I mean, he's headed back to his daddy's church. But the inability to hear God and his colleagues while he's in seminary means that when he gets back to his church, he's already tone deaf. Okay, sound like like it has always sounded for the last fifty years. Even though he's talking about moving the church forward, and you know, you know, the truth of the matter, he's not talking. He's not going to move the church forward. He's only hearing what he's heard. Profound. I got one last question for you, but I'll let Elizabeth fill in anything that she has in terms of commentary of that. But I got one last question for you, and then we'll wrap up. Go ahead, Elizabeth. No, I just, I, I couldn't help but um, think about how all of this is a journey, that we really don't need to be stuck at these points, that this can be a journey, that this is why we teach, is so that we can help people journey through these pieces. Um, one of the things I've learned is that in attaining uh, identity when you're dealing with the hybridness of who you are is that it's easy to swing the pendulum from oh white people love me to I hate all white people and I only love Latinos but what you're loving is a, a select thing about who Latinos are right and and different groups do this in different ways it's it's a swinging pendulum and it also takes, it takes a really deep sense of a different kind of belonging to feel sure enough, secure enough to be able to journey through that with the love of those around you so that you begin to open up your heart, so that you begin to feel less uh, threatened by the new encounters that you have as you're growing up, right? Because the reality is that we're we're talking about what could and should be perhaps, but then there's the other reality that we know. And so when we're when we're looking at that, people get hit by these other realities and, and they have these encounters. And these encounters are traumatic. And from those traumatic moments, then people go looking for the places where they can um, feel secure. And it's hard to bring you out of there when you've been traumatized by a yeah. hit, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And your innocence was taken away by this hit. <clears throat> and so part of, of what it means to bring healing so that persons can have that sense of freedom is important as a pastoral side to this. And as part of that pastoral side, there's a, there's a teaching to this, right? And a continuous modeling of what this means. But we have to talk about what we do with the woundedness of, that we encounter along the journey of, of trying to be there. What it really means that we're sheep in the midst of wolves, right? We are sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus, Jesus made it clear, right? Jesus made it clear. We are sheep in the midst of wolves. And many times that very woundedness can come from the people closest to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and we're experiencing what it means when persons in the church have felt the abuse of control, 
of, of, of spiritual control that's not right, or what it has meant to not be able to have the freedom to ask questions and to move in new directions according to how a new generation is feeling the spirit come to them, there's that woundedness. And now they're feeling that these spaces that were once sacred spaces are no longer their spaces and they're even rejecting the story, the Christian story altogether, right? And trying to find other stories that can uh, help them to have the kind of belongingness that they want and need. And so that's what's all at stake here. Yeah. yeah. That uh, raises a question for me. My last question, actually, it's like Elizabeth knew exactly what I was going to ask. We're, we're on, we're in tune here. That, that pain, uh, Dr. Jennings was brought up to me by a, a friend who read your book after whiteness, that pain that Elizabeth just talked about. And, and he raised this, he said, you know, all theologies of belonging must at least include some discussion about exclusion. There, there should be something on there, right? Um, you know, we've been invited as people of color to be long suffering with white folk, right? Some white folk who clearly have zero interest in moving beyond whiteness or to a life after whiteness, right? And so he said, you know, what is a just, merciful practice of exclusion? What does that look like? Um, you, in your mm. book, you have this phrase, exclusion that does not isolate. You use it a couple times, actually, in the book. Um, mm -hmm. And so him and I, as we, as we think of our own pain and wounds, we were wondering, what, what does that kind of, what does a covenantal practice that is just and merciful, a practice of exclusion, what does it look like after whiteness? Well, you know, it's, that's a wonderful question. And, you know, in the last chapter, when I talk about a, a different kind of gathering, I try to get at that. Um, so, you know, it, it is, it is um, what it looks like is the rich young ruler. When Jesus says, great, come on, let's go. Sell all you got, give it to the let's Rich young ruler looks him in the face, shakes his head and turns away and walks away, right? That's the exclusion that does not isolate because ringing in his ears as he walks away is Jesus's words, come, come, come. But he's walking away because those words carry too much. <laughs> they carry too much, right? And so um, it does include that reality of exclusion. So in that final chapter, I talk about I talk about what it means for um, people of, people who have understood and lived comfortably inside that whiteness to now be invited into a gathering in which they are not at the center. A gathering in which they are there, but they're not at the center. They don't get to define the gathering. It's, it's, and the image, as you know, in that last chapter is that whiteness loves a gathering that everything flows around it. And, and that gathering can be super large, you get as big as you want, or it can be as small, but the point is that it's still flowing around. But what happens if all of a sudden, no, it's not flowing around you. You are inside of the movement. And what's at the center is this kind of figure eight. <laughs> 
of all these peoples of color, all this reality. And so you're still there. And, and you could actually say that there's a, in a kind of a millisecond, you, you hit the middle. But when you hit it, this, there's already two other people on either side, like a figure eight. So, so now, the reality of it is, is that that becomes the moment of exclusion. Because many people shaped in whiteness, not just white people, but many people shaped in whiteness, they don't want that kind of gathering. That, that's too confusing. So what does that look like? You know, I will go to this church, but I never know what I'm going to give. I'm, I never know what I'm going to give from Sunday to Sunday because the, pre, the preaching here is so uneven. The music is so uneven. One week we got this. One week we got that. One week we got somebody, who, you know, who, could, who preaches like they know what they're doing. One week we got somebody who don't know what they're talking about. Uh, that's too confusing for me. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. So... But it's not the exclusion that is inside of whiteness. It's the exclusion that exercises whiteness for those who want it exercised. And in that regard, I think the greatest challenge facing Christianity, especially in, in, this, in this country and in the West, is that the, the structures of life that so many Christians are inside of are structures that sustain white centeredness. And so, and, and it's not, and it's, it's, it's geographic, it's built environment, it's intellectual, it's spiritual, it's aesthetic. And long as it sustains that white centeredness at the end of the day, they are yet to come to the crucial question of their discipleship that Jesus asks. Will you sell all and follow me? <laughs> and the answer thus far is that, uh-uh. <laughs> I'm following you, but I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to what I got because I love it that all this beautiful multicultural diversity is flowing around me and I get to enjoy it all and I get to stay at the center. So if, if there is going to be, if there's going to be a new reality, then, then um, many people who all their life have lived inside the realities of control, possession, and mastery will have to renounce it, will have to step away from it. And that, my sister, my brother, that, that's, that's why we, we are where we are in this country, because people are sensing that's, that giving this up means that I no longer can direct where the story is going. And that, we a long people, way ahead of us. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I am hopeful. And I'll, I'll, I'll end with saying this. I, I am hopeful there are, you know, as I said in the book, you know, I've been, I've been in the academy all my adult life. And in the last 10, 15 years, I have seen something I never thought I would see. I have seen young white men and young white women, but especially young white men come up to me, sit in my office and say, Dr. Jennings, I love my, I love my dad. I love my granddad. I love my uncles. But Dr. Jennings, I don't want to be them. And the first time that happened to me, I, I had to, I had to say, could you just say, could you just say, but I, I understood. 
I understood. The tragedy was that I didn't, I didn't have a school. I didn't have colleagues, a lot of colleagues, I had a few, but I didn't have a school that was shaped to hear that plea. His plea was, can you help me not become them? And unfortunately, that is, that's still a plea that Western education, especially theological education, whether we're talking about Bible college, seminary, school, still can't, it still can't answer that plea, still can't answer that plea. It's interesting. You mentioned you need other colleagues, other persons mm-hmm. to also help to create an ethos in which that can be nurtured further. Places of collaboration, we get glimpses. Mm-hmm. We get glimpses, talking about hope. Places of collaboration, where people are learning to collaborate because otherwise none of us are going to be sustained. None of us are going to be sustained. And places of collaboration then turn into places of sharing. Mm-hmm. When you start sharing, Someone's sharing with you. There's generosity, there's hospitality, and then there's appreciation. You start appreciating. You start appreciating those who are sharing with you because you never, had never entered your imagination that they had so much to give. Right, right. You had only seen them through particular filters of, of the prejudice that's present. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But when sharing begins to take place, it changes things. Right. And and a spirit begins to take over that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. So with that for me are, are spaces for for hope, spaces of vislumbres. Um, what's vislumbres? <clears throat> These little highlights. <laughs> These little moments where the sun peeks in through the clouds, right? Vislumbres. Just quick, now you see it, now you don't kind of things. But those places of sharing are doing so much, but we have to reflect on them. Yeah. Because otherwise it's just a happening and it disappears. You have to reflect on them so that they become experiences that stay. And this whole issue of telling each other's stories, <clears throat> that's huge. Remember that. That's huge. That's I have internalized you, if I could tell your story. And you have internalized me, if you can tell my story. And we've come to a place where we actually were telling each other, telling each other our stories. And that's, those are the spaces for sharing to take place. Mm-hmm. If I could just very quickly, you know, when I was a pastor in New England, we were the only Hispanic church, <clears throat> the only anything other than white church that was, you know, in, in this association, Baptist Freely Associated. And we were always being invited to do potlucks so they could get to know these Latinos. And my people hated going down to have a potluck (laughs) because New Englanders are frugal. (laughs) 
and it's expressed at, at the potluck. <laughs> and so, at least the community I was dealing with was very frugal. I, I hear you. <laughs> and I suggested that instead they come to our space and they saw a banquet. Mm. And we were all poorer than they were. Mm. It was just a small place in New England, and they, you know, you know who works where and what they do, and you know therefore mm. what they make. Mm. And we had a banquet, and instead of just coming to eat and listen to, you know, the natives beating their drums, I invited people to tell stories. And the other pastor said, "Okay, I'll find some people who will tell their stories." And we started telling stories, and people didn't want to leave. Mm. There became a place where we became brothers and sisters. Mm. And from that telling of stories, people realized how differently our lived realities were. And then we began to pray together. Mm. And you start hearing people's petitions are and you start feeling them in the spirit because you're interceding even more so you're internalizing my reality and you're accompanying me on my reality until finally you can't stand it anymore and you decide that you have to share the power that you have and you realize that you have more power than you knew that you had that you are an influencer in that space and you begin to say, wait a minute, I had, I had this here. Let me share this. Mm. And you start sharing your connections. Yeah. And you start sharing at a board meeting where you sit. I don't sit there, but you sit there. And now you're sharing my story because you internalized me. That's it. That's and it. you start turning some things around. Mm -hmm. And that is a transformation where sharing takes place in larger and larger ways. Mm -hmm. Amen. And we just follow where the spirit takes us. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, thank you for sharing that story of uh, a mm -hmm. belonging that is after whiteness, a belonging that I think demonstrates exactly the kind of vision we're trying to paint here. Dr. Jennings, thank you so much for joining us again. It's been an honor to have you on the podcast. It's been a gift to listen to two preachers imagine the world differently. <laughs> Always a joy to be with my dear sister. And thank you so much for this invitation. Glad to have been here. Thank you. Well, hey, listeners, next episode will be a little different. Next episode, we are going live for the show. First time that the Mestizo podcast is ever doing that. We're doing a live recording. We'll have more information on that. But let me tell you who's going to be joining us. We'll be joined for a panel of people that include Dr. Nathan Cartagena of Wheaton College, Natalia Conrivera of IVP. Dr. Robert Char Romero, you know him. He's our great friend. And Evangelina Morales, which is Elizabeth Condefrager's daughter. Did I get that right? Evangelina? Evangelina? Evangelina. Evangelina. Mana mia. Uh, the episode is titled <laughs> A More Complicated Mixed. Our guests are going to be talking about uh, their mixedness. And in the literal sense, they are mestizos of a different kind. So they're going to talk about how they navigate that in this reality of a mixed church, a new church. Uh, we'll have more information about that on our uh, social media, so make sure to follow us 
Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at World Outspoken, so you can find out how you can join us for this live taping of the show. Again, if you have any questions about the conversation we've had with Dr. Jennings, don't forget that you can leave us a question either following the link on the podcast or by calling 312-729-2995-312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, your city, y tu pregunta, and we will take it on the last episode of the season. That's it. Se acabó. Gracias. Gracias.